First Peter chapter 3, verse 8. If you'll find that, please. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. We're going to talk about the honorable qualities in the Christian congregation. Today, we're going to consider one verse. Uh, it's in a larger context about the honorable conduct of Christians in the world. So situate ourselves before we read the text. This section that we're in, honorable conduct among the unbelievers in the world, is in the larger section of the whole letter of 1 Peter, which Peter tells us himself in the last chapter, he says, this whole letter is about the true grace of God. We never want to forget the grace of God. And so Peter says, stand firm in it. The true grace of God means that God has done everything, everything for us on our behalf to put us right with himself. God is the one who was sinned against and God did everything on our behalf to make us right with himself. This is the true grace of God. He made us his people. He brought us into his people, the people of Christ, the people of the kingdom, his church. We are born again by his spirit. He did everything at the cross of Christ. The cross, we sang about it. We're going to hear about it over and over today. The cross of Christ is where God did everything. That's where the true grace is. Christ ransomed us by his death because he died in our place on the cross. Through his death, our sins are forgiven. And all of that by the work of the cross. The Holy Spirit has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So here we are alive, born again. Here we are forgiven, cleansed by the cross of Christ. Here we are with a future. As the church of Jesus Christ, this is the true grace of God. But we live now. And the life we live now, Peter has described as a sojourning life. We're living here as we belong to Christ, as we belong to the kingdom of Christ, we're living as citizens in this world. And the way we live as sojourners is to conduct ourselves honorably among unbelievers, among the world. We're saved by grace, changed by grace, now we live graciously. So we pick that up from 1 Peter 2.12, conduct yourselves among the Gentiles in an honorable way, so that when they speak against you as evil, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, Peter hones in with another word in one verse, honorable conduct among the congregation. Stand with me in honor of God's word. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, Brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. This is God's word. You may be seated. Now that is straightforward. <laughs> to the point. Short, but so, so weighty. And lived out, so beautiful. Remember. We started this section, <clears throat> honorable conduct among the unbelievers. He said, live a certain way in relation to the government. If that piques your interest and you weren't here, find it online. I can't re-preach it. And then, 
honorable conduct in the workplace. And last week, honorable conduct in marriage. And now, honorable conduct among ourselves. Here's a question. Why is Peter now talking about the congregation? Why is he now talking about the Christian community or the church? That is the context. We know that because he said, have unity of mind. You cannot have unity of mind in Christ if you don't affirm the same truth and love the same gospel with other people. So he must be talking about unity of mind in the church. Sure, we have share, we share common values and common goals in society. We have a common sense of of things, but to have unity of mind, as Peter means here, can only happen among Christians because it's about the truth of Christ and the gospel and the whole aim of Christ. And he says, have brotherly love. He's talking about the, the brotherhood, brothers and sisters in Christ. So if Peter's larger theme is honorable conduct among unbelievers, <clears throat> why does he now shift to honorable conduct among believers in the congregation. Because within and without the church, within the church and outside in the world, among believers and unbelievers, the true grace and mercy of God instructs us in how to live. This is what Paul said when he wrote to Titus. The grace of God has appeared, bringing you salvation and instructing you in how to live. God's grace instructs. And because, why is he talking now about the church? Because unbelievers can see into the church, or at least they should do that. They should be not only allowed to, but invited to see into the church. We should be so confident in Christ, so clear about our message, and we should conduct ourselves according to Christ in such a way that we're not uncomfortable, we're not embarrassed, we're not afraid to have unbelievers looking in, coming in, even if they don't respond to the gospel. The church, in this sense, is public. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians when he talked about believers entering into your community, into your gathering, into your church services. Unbelievers entering in and seeing the believers in such a way that the unbelievers hear the gospel, believe, and glorify God. So he addresses the church, when he's talking about our conduct in the world, because he wants us to know that the world should and can be looking in to see. And also because why is he addressing the church? Because God's grace instructs us in and out of the church, because unbelievers can see in the church, and also because he's addressing the church in the total context of conduct in the world because suffering is a part of our sojourning life. Suffering is a major theme in 1 Peter. Already, he has said that now, for a little while, Christians experience various trials and testings of faith. Chapter 1. Chapter 2, 
He said that Christians are going to be spoken against as evildoers. Now, he's saying Christians are going to suffer when they do good. Starting in chapter 3 and verse 9, which we'll pick up, Lord willing, next week, and all the way through chapter 4, the whole section is about suffering. So that's a major context here. So Peter exhorts the congregation to live honorably among itself, to possess these honorable qualities in the church because the church is so important in our suffering. The church is so important in our suffering. Suffering and tension and stress and trials and testings can often cause any group of people, including a congregation, to turn on itself. We know that. We see it in a family. Often when there's hardship in a family, a family turns on itself in a harmful way. We see it among friends. There's tension or a trial and we turn on ourselves. We ask when these things happen, why is this happening? Who's to blame? What should we have done to prevent this? How should we respond to this? And so when there's, when there's suffering and trial and testing, the tension rises, and often the people who are experiencing it together turn on themselves. Self rises to the top. The questions get answered differently, and before you know it, life's not good among the people. Peter is exhorting these people in this context away from that. He's saying, you're going to suffer. There's going to be hardship and trial and testing, but you need to remain together. You need to have these qualities so you won't turn on each other. Another side of that is that suffering is endured better or more faithfully when believers stay together. When we're unified, when we have sympathy, when we have love, when there's tenderness, when there's humility, when we're together, we can help one another in the times of suffering and trial. This is what Peter is aiming at. It's what he wants for the church. So this is not just an isolated verse dropped in the middle of all of this context. He's calling the church to something in the midst of the sojourning life, which includes suffering among the unbelievers in this world. So it's a short exhortation for all of the believers in the congregation. And this is what he says. Have unity of mind. Have sympathy. Have brotherly love. Have a tender heart. Have a humble mind. Now, before we look at it for ourselves, we can't help but see a description of Jesus. That's the first thing I want us to see. It's the first point. This is describing Jesus. Second point, we'll get to ourselves. It describes us. But this is Jesus. John said... The Apostle John, who knew Peter, friend of Peter's, he said, We love because he first loved us. This he first 
is the key to this. Christ first. Christ came to us. We didn't reach for him. He came to us. Christ first submitted his life to the Father for his purposes. Christ loved us. Christ died for us. Christ rose again. Christ rules. Then, by his grace, we are forgiven. We are reconciled. We are filled with the Spirit. We are his followers, his disciples. These qualities are first in Christ. It's Christ first, then we follow after Christ. We read just a moment ago from Philippians chapter 2, and I want to read it again because it clearly shows this principle of Christ first, then we follow. So he says, Paul does in Philippians chapter 2, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, there's in our verse today, sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, that's in our verse today, having the same love, there it is, being in full accord in one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but with humility, that's in our verse today, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own request, but also to the interest of others. Okay, now you could stop there and say, no, that's telling us to do something first. There's our command, but keep following. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, Christ first. He was in the form of God before you and I existed. He was in the form of God before the church existed. He was in the form of God before anything existed. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, but he emptied himself of all of his glory to come here to take on the form of a servant. Christ did this first. Being born in the likeness of men, Christ was born first. Found as in a human form, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This was first before there was a church. The cross was before there was a church. We see first and foremost in this verse we're looking at today, Christ. And then as we see him and behold him, we can live for him and unto his glory. Jesus, let's look at those, <clears throat> those qualities. Jesus had unity of mind. <clears throat> He had unity of mind with God the Father. God the Father and God the Son shared the same mind, the same purpose, that means, the same will, the same plan, the same resolve from the beginning of time. They had the same thinking about everything. They did not have differences of opinion. Jesus said, John 10, I and the Father are one. When Jesus spoke of his heavenly Father in the Gospels, we can see that Jesus was always in agreement with the Father. The Father and the Son, the two, two of the three persons of the one living and true God, were always on the same page about everything, including the cross. The cross was not the Father's idea that the Son did reluctantly or under duress or forced. It was the will of the Father and the Son together. They shared the same mind. Jesus shared great 
sympathy. That's the next one. Great sympathy for sinners. Jesus had mercy on people in spiritual darkness, in sin, in sickness, and in ignorance. You can imagine, can't you? Jesus walking among the people of his day. He's the son of God and he is provoking the demons. Everywhere he went, he provoked the demons. And those who were possessed by demons began to speak, and Jesus had sympathy for them. And when people came to Jesus, ignorant of God and his ways, Jesus had sympathy on them. He looked at people with a heart, and he said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Who's going to shepherd these people? He bore burdens. People came and said, my child is sick. He was broken for that and sympathetic. He restored men and women to God in their dignity. He saw a man in the tombs so possessed and so out of his mind that he was cutting himself and he, he couldn't be bound by other people. And so people just left him alone in this tragic, lonely, dark place. And Jesus came and restored him. Told him, you're a child of God. Sympathy. He showed the sympathy in word and deeds and in emotion. Jesus felt. And he especially showed sympathy on the cross. He showed sympathy for you and me in our lost condition, in our darkness, our helplessness. He poured out his blood on the cross. And now he's been raised and he's, he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he continues to sympathize with our weakness. He knows, he knows our weakness. He knows our failings. He knows our doubts. He knows our fears. And he is there with the Father as a high priest and he sympathizes with us and he represents us that he might grant us ongoing grace. What a beautiful Savior. And Jesus showed brotherly love. He had love for the brothers and the sisters that traveled around with him. He had love for his disciples. When Lazarus was in the tomb and his sisters were mourning, Jesus wept and they said, look at how much he loved him. And John tells us that Jesus loved his disciples all the way to the end. Where is that? The cross. And Jesus showed tenderness. He showed tenderness to a lot of people. But I couldn't help this week thinking about this, remembering that Jesus showed tenderness to Peter, the man who wrote this letter. The man who wrote these words was shown the tenderness of Jesus. Peter denied Jesus three times. And after that final time when he said, I don't even know him. And then he threw out a curse word for emphasis. Jesus heard it. And Jesus turned and looked at Peter. And it broke him. It just broke Peter. Not because the look of Jesus was angry. 
And not because the look of Jesus was disappointed or condemning. But because the look of Jesus was tender. It was a longing look. Jesus' heart was pierced too. Because his friend had just denied him. But Jesus looked at Peter with a longing look. A longing look. He said, I long for you to know God's grace. I long for you to be forgiven. And I'm going to forgive you. And I long for my look to pierce you and to convict you so you'll come back and you'll return. And then in tenderness, in tenderness, Jesus actually restored Peter because after the resurrection, they were having breakfast on a beach one morning. And those dreaded words in Peter's ears came from Jesus when he said, how many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three. And so three times Jesus said to Peter, Peter... Do you love me? The tenderness of those words. You say, that wasn't tender. That was calling him out. No, it wasn't. He was restoring. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I know you love me. Uh, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Tenderness. Even from the cross, Jesus showed tenderness to a thief. A thief. Nailed to the cross next to Jesus. And all he said was, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But that was from a heart. And Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. And Jesus had a humble mind too. He submitted his entire will to the work of God. Here are some things that Jesus said. He said, I don't do anything and I don't say anything unless I see my father doing it or unless I hear my father saying it. That is total submission. Absolute submission. Jesus said in John 17, Father, I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That is submission. That's a humble mind. Philippians 2, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility of mind is submission. And that characterized Jesus when he was on this earth. These qualities, you'll notice, every one of these qualities that we're reading today in this one single verse are in Jesus. And notice that they led him to the cross. These qualities were behind Jesus going to the cross. I'm really hoping that you see something today. This verse that we read, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. I'm hoping that you see that these are the qualities, the character of a man who gave himself a ransom for you. I hope you see these words carved on the cross that he died on, I hope you see these words with the stain of blood on them. Because this is the heart of Jesus that led him all the way to the cross for you and me. So when you see him there, the calling is to repent and believe and to trust him. And I hope you see that not only did it lead him to the cross, but it resulted in the church. We are here today because this is Jesus. 
We're here today because this is the character of our Savior who went to the cross for us. And there is a call to the congregation. A congregation, a church saved by the cross of Christ. Brothers, God's people are not an option for us. It's not a choice. I'll take Christ, not his people. Not a choice. When he saves you, you become his people. You're his people, whether you like it or not. And I hope you see that what's in Jesus defines the honorable conduct of the church. That's the second point. First point, this is Jesus. Second point, this is us. The qualities of the congregation. He says in verse 8, finally. It's a summing up. He's, he's summing up what he saw, what he said earlier. But he's also stepping into a whole new section of suffering. Finally, all of you. Every Christian. In every congregation. Every Christian here today every member of Grace Community Church, this is you. If you're a Christian, there you are. All of you. This is personal. I hope you receive it as such. It's a calling. It's beautiful. You're being called to a beautiful life right here in the congregation. He gives us five exhortations. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind. This is a challenge for us today, isn't it? Yes, there's diversity. And yes, that is the, the word of the day. He says, have unity of mind. That means have harmony of thought and attitude. That means we are all to be tuned to the same truth and the same attitude that belongs to Christ. That's why we have paired this verse with Philippians 2 because it's the mind of Christ that we're to have it means that we are all together tuned to the same truth and attitude that belongs to Christ that accords with Christ it means that we together are to think Christ's thoughts we're to have Christ's attitude we're to pursue Christ's goals and his purpose we're to follow Christ's ways we're to respond in Christ's way we're to mind together the things of Christ we have a phrase that says mind your business what we're being told here is to mind Christ's business to mind the things of Christ to have his mind these are the things that are revealed in the scripture we're to have the Mind of Christ in the basic biblical truth of the gospel. The facts, the meaning, the significance, and the call to repent and faith, repent and believe in the gospel. We're to have the same mind related to the Bible's teaching about ethics and morality. The teaching of the Bible and the implications of the gospel for living. We're to have the same mind about this. We're to have the same mind or, or the same attitude, the same humility, the same submission. The same obedience, all for the glory of God. So you can see that to have the same mind, to have the mind of Christ, includes the truth, the living, and the attitude. The, that which comes from the heart. We're to have the same mind. 
We're called to have unity of mind in the congregation. And the, the mind part of that is Christ's. Now how? How are we going to do this? Isn't that the question of the day? Well, it's not going to be as someone makes a list and says, now y'all all agree on this and we'll all get along. It's going to take some work, some prayer, some intentionality, some conversation, some interaction. It's going to take life together to have unity of mind. Here are some ways that we can have this and pursue this. We can, first of all, seek the mind of Christ. Wake up every day and say, Father, teach me your ways. Jesus, lead me in the right paths. Follow the way, the truth, and the life. Seek the mind of Christ. Seek Christ. This is how. If we're not seeking Christ, we will never have unity of mind. We will always live in conflict unless we're seeking the mind of Christ. And then we must be in Christ's word together. No apology whatsoever for keeping the Bible as the content of this congregation. Because that's the mind of Christ. Let the word of Christ richly dwell among you. So we have to be in it together. You've got it open right now, either open or on. And you're looking at it. You should be. And then in your group, community group, or your small group, or your conversations, we have to be in the Bible together. Here's another one. So we seek the mind of Christ. We seek, we're in the word of Christ together. And then we have to talk about it. We discuss the word in a way that gets at the mind of Christ, the truth of Christ, and then actually helps one another. I can't tell you, I've got to throw this in, I can't tell you how excited I was. I don't know, it might have been two months ago, I can't remember, but one of the community groups here asked me to come to their group, and I did, and I kind of sat off to the side. And a lot of times when I go to a group, I'm a downer at the group. <laughs> I walk in and I just kill everything. I kill the discussion questions get asked and nobody says a word and everybody looks at me I'm like I already preached once <laughs> but not this group not this group they ignored me it was beautiful <laughs> but I listened as they taught and admonished one another in the word of Christ and you know what I don't recall one weird statement in that whole night not one weird statement. Nobody got off topic. It was just clear and encouraging. They might have had differences about certain things in life, but it sounded to me like they were together that night on the Word of Christ. Unity of mind. And we have to humble our minds to learn from Christ and to learn from one another. So I sat in that group humbled, saying, teach me. And when that kind of thing happens, I'm like, oh, we should have community groups before the sermon. That way I'd have a better sermon as I learn from people. We said, but what about? What about 
disunity over the truth and morality in the gospel. Oh, listen, it's real. And I don't have a lot of time to go here, but I'm going to give you enough to say this. Yes, there is disunity about the truth and the morality of the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have to work hard and we have to pray hard and we have to seek to correct in a way that leads us back to the truth. And sadly, sadly, separation happens. And it, it must happen when the disunity remains over the essential things of the gospel and of the truth of God's word. It's sad, but it happens. But what about just disagreement over the non-essential things? Well, there's a lot of that too. Certainly Christians are allowed to and can and do disagree over things. We think differently about some things in this life and in this world and in our lives and sometimes even within the church. But we can still remain in fellowship with one another when these are over the non-essential things. When this happens, we turn to places like Romans 14, which that's your afternoon reading assignment or this week reading assignment. Romans 14. It says there that we really have to discern what we must have unity about. What are the essentials? What is the gospel? What is the teaching, the doctrine? What is the morality prescribed? Discern those things that we must have unity about. And then discern the things that we don't have to have unity about. Some of the applications, some of the preferences. And then Romans 14 says, when you figure that out, then don't judge each other over the non-essentials. And Romans 14 says, you've got to love each other deeply. For the purpose of sojourning together, have unity of mind. Went a little longer on that one than I'll go on the rest, but let's continue. He says, have sympathy. Sympathy. Be affected by what other people experience. That's what that means. To have sympathy means to be affected by what other people experience. The Bible puts it like this rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep share in the sorrows and in the joys of others feel with them and if you don't feel with them pray that God will help you feel first Corinthians 12 says if if one member suffers we all suffer do you feel that you sense that well, I, I, I can't. I don't know. And it's because sometimes people don't let us know. They don't talk about what they're struggling with. So I would say to you, talk about it. And then I would say to you who hear it, listen to it and feel it. Sympathy is that quality that enables us to share joys and sorrows with one another. We should cultivate it. Slow down when you hear of someone's sorrow and pain. Take it in. Process it. Think about them. Pray for it. Experience the feeling of it. Express the sympathy to other people. That's what I hear so often. Is I just don't know what to say to people when they're in these kinds of situations. 
You don't have to say anything most of the time. Just groan with them. Just feel with them. Hug them. Don't be afraid of silence. Have sympathy, he says. Now, why would he say that to these people? Because these people are suffering. And we are too. The beauty of a sympathetic place. And then third, he says, have brotherly love. This is family love he's talking about here. He's talking about the, the Christian family. In Christ family. With God as our heavenly father family. Love one another. It's deep. It's deep and devoted love. It's love that has, the purpose of this love is you want somebody's good. You want people to know God. It's an active love. It actually does something. It doesn't just feel. Sympathy can feel. Brotherly love can do. It motivates everything. I love the way Paul shuts down 1 Corinthians 16 with these staccato commands as we've got today. And then he says, but let everything you do be done in love. Love motivates everything. Love stays with people. How quickly we are abandoning people. How quickly we've drawn our boundaries. Yes, there are, as I said a moment ago, yes, there are times we have to say there's a clear line. We can't have fellowship across that line. That happens. It's real. But brotherly love says when we're within that, we stay, we remain, we love, we care. Regular prayer, putting ourselves and others before God. Meditating on God's love helps us love. He, we love because he first loved us. Number four, he says, have a tender heart. We talked about Jesus' tender heart toward Peter. Now we're called to have one as well, kind-hearted compassionate some translations say you can see how these qualities really interrelate can't you I mean tenderheartedness is so connected to sympathy and brotherly love they're all closely related may the Lord tenderize our hearts with his love you know what tenderizes my heart my own failing my own struggles with my own emotions my own personality weaknesses. It's just me alone with God and I'm not having to be on and I see just how weak I am and then I see that God keeps me. It tenderizes my heart. A tender heart is a mind that understands another person's real need in the moment. And then expresses in word and deed in a way that reflects that heart and mind of understanding and awareness. It's ready to serve and help and give and support. Again, we find it at the cross. A tender heart always has a goal in mind. And that's that the other person receive. Receive truth and grace and love and comfort and correction and the blessing that comes from God. Paul said this to the Thessalonians. He said, I came to you with a tender heart. Now here's Paul. 
We were on Peter. We've talked about John. Here's Paul. If you read 2 Corinthians, my goodness what he went through. Beatings and sleepless nights and shipwreck and hunger and cold and had his clothes stripped off of him and didn't have an extra set. Wild animals chased him. Thrown in prison. And he wrote bold letters. But he told the Thessalonians, when I came to you, I came to you in tenderness and gentleness. Why? This is why. See, this is what this is driving at. He said, I was this way to you because I wanted you to receive the word of God. And that, see, tenderness has a goal in mind. It's to tenderize so that the mind and the heart will be open to the eternal, living, active word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's having that purpose that drives this tenderness. And then he says, finally, have a humble mind. Again, humble means submitted to Christ in his word. Humble means to have a proper view of self, not setting it above others. Humble means able and ready to learn from others. Have these qualities and increase in them. It was the Apostle Peter who wrote this short little verse we have for today where he says have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love and a tender heart and a humble mind Peter was not naturally like this he did not naturally possess these qualities if you read about him in the gospels tenderness doesn't really characterize him nor does humility or any of the other at times but Peter was a changed man. There was, a, there was an early Peter who's struggling like we all do. And then there was a Peter after Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit filled him. And entered into his heart and went to work on his soul. And the Holy Spirit produced these qualities in Peter. The Holy Spirit made Peter more like Jesus. Peter was no less a man for possessing these qualities. In fact, he was a more godly man than he was before the Holy Spirit produced these qualities in him when he was driven by self and pride. But now Peter is a man who is filled with the Spirit. And through Humility and through the work of God and through sorrows and suffering and a lot of correction, he now possesses the qualities of Christ. And he's enduring his own suffering. History tells us he himself was crucified upside down, possessing these qualities as a changed man. Well, we have the Spirit. In Christ, We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of Christ, the Bible. We have the example of Christ. We can change. We are changed people. And we can continue to change. And to the extent that we take on these honorable qualities, we will as a congregation glorify Christ. We will reflect Him. 
to each other and in this world. We will edify and build up each other for our day of suffering. For our day of suffering that we might stand faithful with Christ. And we can give a testimony to the true grace of God in Christ that has saved us and changed us in Christ's name.